0: Welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. So we're here with you again with an all new episode. This time, this will be our last episode for 2022. Goodbye, 2022. Good riddance. We're done. It was better than 2021 and 2020. Was not Well, with COVID. We're starting uh, okay. to get back. All I right. look at it that. I'll give you that. Thank you all for joining us. I do have some crime news before we uh, jump into our new episode here, which is somewhat Christmas related. So... Larry Mialete. We covered this case for Maya Mialete back in Season 3, Episode 103, if you'd want to check it out. Well, he has been found fit to stand trial for the murder of his wife, Maya, who vanished from her home in Chula Vista, San Diego, California, on January 7th, 2021. So, Larry's trial was halted in June when his defense attorney declared doubts regarding his competency, but In October, he was deemed fit to stand trial. Now, I haven't seen any news since then. So I don't know if the trial has commenced or they've given a trial date. So we'll let you know about that. But unfortunately, Maya's body has never been found. So I don't know if that will, you know, in a plea agreement arrangement, maybe sometimes they can get that information so the family can kind of get their closure. Get them talking. Yes. And, of course, Sophia de plantier Yes. What's an episode without an update? <laughs> so, Jules Thomas, who, if you remember, she was the paramour to Ian Bailey, the prime suspect. Jules Thomas is suing Netflix and the makers of the documentary, Sophie a murder in West Cork. She claims the documentary contains factual inaccuracies about her and made her a social pariah in her community, affecting her mental, emotional, and financial health. She also intends to argue that she never gave permission for the makers of the Netflix series to film inside or outside her West Cork home, and that the footage is an invasion of privacy. Now, if I'm remembering the Netflix documentary, and it's been a while since I watched it, I don't think they did any interviews with her like hers was more news coverage was added to the documentary. It was all Ian Bailey. He was at Their home, yeah, because he lived there and lived there for quite some time. So that'll be interesting. This civil trial, she is representing herself at this point.
1: Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. My memory is the same as yours, Trish, and I kind of feel like she can get any money for what she went through as a result of these things with Ian Bailey. I think she should. I don't know. I don't know
0: if Netflix is the right place to go for it, but yeah. I mean, I think it's a hard case. I don't know if she'll be able to prove it. I get it. I get Mm -hmm. it that she was a social pariah after this happened. And she probably did lose money. She was a I think her profession was painting. She mm-hmm. did freelance painting. So not a lot of people probably wanted to buy her paintings, which affected her financially. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And then Wendy, you have some shout outs to do? Yeah, we had a couple folks reach
1: out to us on our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We had one from Brittany and one from Lisa W. Not only did they share some nice compliments, but they also gave us a couple case suggestions. Mm So. We do keep a running list of case suggestions. If you don't hear the case that you sent us in a new episode, you know, shortly after you send it to us, keep listening. We do cover them. We do tend to get to them over time.
0: And it's if we can find a lot of information to do at least a half hour episode. That's the other thing. You have to be able to (laughs) get to that information. They're always interesting. If nothing
1: else, we get entertainment value from them. So if nothing else, you're giving us the gift of true crime research. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you want to submit a case suggestion, give us some feedback, updates that you know of in cases that we missed, anything, it's criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. That's probably the easiest way to reach us on our contact form. We're also on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. I think that's all for now. We may, we may branch out, I don't know, new year, new criminal discourse, who knows? Just Google that criminal discourse podcast and you'll find us on those social apps as well. Yes. All right. Are you ready? I'm so ready. This, I mean, none of these are fun, but as fun as it can get,
0: this one is pretty interesting. It is interesting. (laughs) So this episode takes place on Prince Edward's Island, a maritime province off Canada's east coast in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Surprisingly, it's the smallest of provinces, but the most densely populated in Canada. I know. I didn't realize that. Hmm. The island was named after Prince Edward, Duke of Kent and Strathearn, the fourth son of King George III, who will also be the future father of Queen Victoria. Oh. Okay. Who led to Queen Elizabeth, right? Queen Victoria, Queen Uh, Elizabeth? Or is there someone in between?
1: Oh, goodness. I know. I don't know my royal family heritage. Our our ignorance is... I know a lot about Princess Diana, and that's it. Okay.
0: So Prince Edward Island is also known as the Garden of the Gulf. As of 2019, there were about 158,000 citizens, a little over that, living on Prince Edward's Island. The backbone of the island's economy is farming, along with tourism and renewable energy. Farmers produce 25% of Canada's potatoes. That's a lot of potatoes. <sighs> so on October 7th, 1994, a woman notified authorities that there was an abandoned vehicle in a field near her house. Now, when police arrived, they noticed that the license plate was missing, which was a bit of a red flag. But as when they looked inside the car, they became truly alarmed. There was blood spatter Everywhere, both small and what looked like medium impact spatter. To investigators, this indicated that whoever blood this was had been hit with an object such as a fist. So not a large object, something small.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Plus, it was inside the car. So when investigators ran the vehicle's identification number, the VIN number, they found that it belonged to 32-year-old mother of five, Shirley Duguay. Now, when investigators from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrived at the Duguay residence, they discovered that family members had last seen Shirley on October 3rd. So Card discovered on October 7th, they last saw her on the 3rd. And police were surprised that no one had reported her missing for four days. And that would be explained by Shirley's father, Melvin, who had been watching her children, the oldest being 15 at the time and the youngest being a pair of twins around age eight. He told investigators that Shirley had in the past taken off for days at a time without telling anyone and would just reappear. So this was not uncommon. Oh, So Constable Roger Savoy with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police theorized that the blood in the car belonged to Shirley. Nearby the car, a pillow had been found on the ground soaked in blood. Now, according to her family, Shirley would sit... On the pillow to give her more height while she was driving, Shirley only stood 4 feet 9 inches tall. And she weighed less than 100 pounds. And when you look at pictures of Shirley, one would describe her as frail looking. She was just a small little thing. Tiny. So to cement the theory that the blood did belong to Shirley, investigators took a blood sample from her father, Melvin. Now, when comparing the samples, technicians were able to match 50% of the genetic markers in the blood found in the car to Melvin Duguay. The blood in the car and the blood-soaked pillow belonged to Shirley. But where was she? The RCMP, along with students from the Atlantic Police Academy, began a search of Prince Edward Island, the largest at the time, and they would end up searching hundreds of square miles and waterways with little luck and had to call it off when winter settled in, which I would imagine it's quite brutal. It has to be. Well, I just know what they get in Vermont and Maine, so I'm (laughs) assuming yes. They even consulted psychics at this point. So these psychics gave vague directions where to find Shirley, buried near water, in a shallow grave, under pine trees. Now, So this information didn't really help the police nail down the search area. Was that kind of what the whole area looks like? Well, yes. <laughs> so that's why it didn't really help nail down the search area. So what did help was the discovery of a shovel found about a half mile from the abandoned vehicle that had two long black hairs attached. Now, when technicians compared the hairs from hairs collected from Shirley's hairbrush, they were microscopically similar. Another big discovery was a plastic bag that contained a pair of white sneakers and a blood-stained brown leather jacket. Now, I watched an episode of Forensic Files on this, and that is connected in our show notes. And they placed the discovery of this plastic bag and its contents approximately 15 miles away from Shirley's car after weeks of searching. However, other information from news articles reported that it was three days into the search that they found this plastic bag with its contents, and it was found about six miles from Shirley's home. So it might have been found in the similar area, but it seems the timeline's a little different. But regardless, they found this bag with its contents. I often wonder when
1: I come across discrepancies like that, if the earlier one is incorrect, if it's an attempt by the police to give the information,
0: but false details to kind of in case there's a false confession. I don't know. I've also found that when I watch forensic files that not all the information like when I go back to read trial transcripts Mm. and I compare it's not the same. Oh, okay. That forensic files and it might just be due for literary licensing purposes change things a little bit. So investigators talked with Melvin Duguay on his thoughts on who would have likely harmed his daughter and Melvin immediately Stated it was her estranged husband, Doug Beamish. Now, when I say estranged husband, I don't think they were legally married. I think they were considered more common law man and wife. Mm -hmm. Shirley and Beamish had an on again, off again relationship for over 15 years. That at times was violent, with Beamish physically abusing Shirley. And the couple shared the three youngest children. So the set of twins and the next oldest one. Beamish had a history of police involvement due to his violent behavior that had been reported in both Toronto and on Prince Edward's Island. In 1991, Beamish had been served a peace bond. Now a peace bond is often used in cases of domestic violence and stalking where the perpetrator agrees to certain conditions such as no contact with the victims and forbidden to carry firearms. So this sounds very similar to the protection from abuse order issued here in the United States. And it was after the issuance of the peace bond that Shirley returned to Prince Edward Island. So I think this had occurred in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And then she moved back with her kids. Investigators next talked to Doug Beamish, who was residing at his parents' home at that time on Prince Edward's Island. And Beamish denied any involvement in what was happening with Shirley. He didn't know where she was. He had nothing to do with her disappearance. And he was asked by investigators, what's your shoe size? And he answered a size nine course, that was the same size as the pair of sneakers found in the white plastic bag. So next, Dr. Keith Bettel, a forensic podiatrist, was contacted to determine if the shoes found belonged to Beamish. So investigators issued a warrant for Beamish's feet impressions. So Beamish had to stand in plastic styrofoam molds while plaster of Paris was poured inside. Now, once the plaster hardens, the molds can be then used to compare the wear patterns in the pair of shoes. According to Dr. Bettles, everyone wears shoes differently as the soles of our feet transfer impressions onto the soles of our shoes.
1: This is interesting.
0: It's kind of like a fingerprint.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So in Beamish's case, he was found to have hyperflex toes, meaning that they turn up at the end and his feet pronated inwards. And Dr. Bettles was convinced that the shoes that had been found in the discarded plastic bag belonged to Beamish. However, Beamish again continued to deny that the sneakers and jackets belonged to him. Next, investigators turned their attention to 20 brittle white hairs found inside the leather jacket. Technicians determined that the hairs didn't appear to be human when compared under a microscope. The mandalas or the core that runs through the center of a hair can determine if it's human or animal. A thick mandala means it's an animal. A thin mandala means it's human. The hairs found inside the jacket had thick mandalas, meaning they came from an animal. Now, Constable Savoy had remembered that when he had interviewed Beamish at his parents' house, he saw a white cat. The cat in question was named Snowball, the family pet. Now, could this be the same cat that the white hairs in the jacket belonged to? Constable Savoy looked at the pants he had worn that day of the interview and remembered that the cat had rubbed up against his leg. Now, I think this happened pretty quickly because I'd like to think he washed his pants. Yeah. You know, if there was a time period in between. So white hairs were collected from those pants, and they looked identical to the ones found on the jacket. But were they? So investigators ran into a roadblock. When they discovered that forensic testing on cat hair had never been done before, anywhere, anywhere in the world. Hmm. Constable Savoy was on a mission, and he made numerous calls to labs around the world trying to find one that would do DNA testing on cat hairs. And he got lucky when he reached Dr. Stephen O'Brien, a chief geneticist at the National Cancer Institute in Frederick, Maryland. Dr. O'Brien had spent the last several decades studying hereditary illness in cats. Dr. O'Brien and his team... Needed a blood sample from Snowball, which was a little easier said than done once the warrant was issued and read snowball took off. <laughs> so they're trying to track down this cat. And once he's caught, he's taken to the Summerdale Animal Hospital where Dr. Jane Bond drew the blood sample. And so not to break chain of custody, two Canadian officers personally delivered the blood and cat hairs to Dr. O'Brien. So you might be wondering, well, why didn't they just test the blood on the jacket? Because clearly that would have been probably Shirley's.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the problem was tying that jacket to Beamish. Mm -hmm. They needed to put it in his possession, and he was denying it was his. Could have been her blood, but there was nothing really else at the time. And I don't think they had touched DNA at this time to prove it was his. So the process to extract the DNA involved taking one hair that still had a root attached and cutting it into pieces. Next, those pieces are put into a buffer solution that dissolves everything but DNA. A DNA profile is then extracted. In Snowball's case, the DNA from his sample had a clear match of genotypes of genetic markers that matched the white hairs found inside the leather jacket. So next, Dr. O'Brien needed to make sure that Snowball's DNA was unique to him and not the thousands of other cats on Prince Edward's Island. So basically, they needed to determine the frequency of Snowball's DNA profile. So blood samples were collected from 20 different cats on the (laughs) island. And I'm just picturing the poor officers that had to go out and try to wrangle these cats to get these (laughs) DNA samples. And these samples were then sent off to Dr. O'Brien's lab. Now, his determination was that there was a 1 in 70 million chance that the hairs found in the jacket did not come from Snowball. I bet there aren't 70 million plus cats on this island. Well, I hope not. (laughs) So seven months after Shirley's disappearance, a fisherman walking along a river found a pile of brush that looked out of place along the riverbank in the area of North Enmore. And this was approximately 10 miles from where Shirley's abandoned vehicle was found. When he started to move the brush away, he saw a human body and immediately contacted authorities. So they had finally uncovered the shallow grave with the partially decomposed body of Shirley Duguay on May 6, 1995. So she was in a shallow grave near water. Mm. And I believe there were pine trees nearby. Mm. So technically, the psychics were correct. They were, they were to their credit. Shirley had been strangled to death and was found with her hands tied behind her back. She had suffered a broken nose, and her jaw was broken in three different places. She also had one of her front teeth knocked out, which was found embedded in her lung. Holy cow. She had received a horrible beating. Beamish was arrested and charged with first-degree murder of his estranged wife. So in April of 1997, Doug Beamish went on trial. What made this no ordinary trial was this would be the first time that animal DNA would be entered into evidence in a murder trial. Witnesses would testify that on the night of Shirley's disappearance, they had heard the couple arguing. Beamish's history of violence against women was also entered into evidence. Now, this next part has to do with a former common law wife of Doug Beamish's that testified. So it is a bit graphic. If this is something that is triggering, please skip ahead. It won't be long, but it goes to the minutiae of the story. So... His former common law ex-wife testified to the vicious beating she would endure at their home in Toronto in the mid-1980s. She recounted that after a night of drinking, Beamish demanded sex, which she had refused. Beamish became angry. He hit her in the face. He grabbed her hair. He dragged her in the bedroom where he raped her. And it was during the rape that Beamish held a butcher knife to her throat and threatened to kill her. Now, afterwards, he told her, don't bother calling for help. I've already cut the phone lines. Wow. And once she was able to get up, She did confirm, in fact, that he had cut the phone lines. So even though he was drunk, he thought ahead to cutting the phone lines Into oh, my gosh. Yes. So Nelson Beamish, brother to Doug Beamish, testified, as did Linda Beamish, who was both Shirley's sister and sister-in-law. Oh, so the sisters were both involved with Beamish men. Okay. So they testified that in the summer of 1992, while Beamish and Shirley were separated, Linda delivered a letter to her sister. And Nelson testified that Shirley allowed him to read it, and he relayed the contents in court. And the letter was from Doug stating that he didn't know why Shirley left him, and that he wanted her return and try to work things out. He went on to say that if they could not be together, there was no point in living, and he was going to kill her their three kids, and then finally himself. And the letter was signed in what looked like blood. Wow. No idea why she wouldn't want to stay with you, Doug. So, Snowball's DNA evidence was entered into testimony, with Dr. O'Brien testifying to the comparisons to other cats on Prince Edward's Island and how Snowball's hairs found on the jacket were unique to him. Also, entered into testimony was a blood sample found in Shirley's car that matched Beamish. Another piece to solidify the prosecution's case was a photo of Beamish taken the day before Shirley's death, showing him wearing the brown leather jacket. (laughs) Needless to say, Doug Beamish was. Sentenced to 18 years after being found guilty of second degree murder, not first degree, on August 1st, 1997. Whoa. I know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I couldn't find out the reason why he got second over first. I think because of the premeditation, that there was no premeditation, mm-hmm. that they had argued and he had killed her, but he didn't. Plan on killing her. Yeah. I guess in my mind, I think he has this pattern.
1: So eventually it would have led to this, especially her size.
0: You do those things to someone who's essentially the size of a child. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, Beamish was denied parole by the National Parole Board, stating that Beamish appeared to lack an understanding as to why he acted out violently. They felt that his lack of understanding brought into question Beamish's ability to not give in to his violent tendencies. Beamish also appeared to have what they called a medium level of motivation with low reintegration potential. Mm. This seemed to be backed up by Beamish's numerous charges for disobeying rules and the 17 disciplinary convictions he received while incarcerated. 17. (laughs) So in October of 2022, Beamish had another hearing in his effort to be paroled. At this hearing, he finally took responsibility for Shirley's murder, something he had never admitted before. He claimed that he accepted responsibility for her murder after all these years due to him suffering three heart attacks and kidney failure and would like to be paroled. Now, he wasn't granted per se parole, but he was granted a 12-hour escort from prison. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if if that's a one and done, if that's going to Continue to happen. So, we talk about the ripple effect murder has on families, and this case is is no different. Shirley's father, Melvin, suffered numerous heart attacks after her death. One article I read said he had suffered 13 of them.
1: Mm, That's unbelievable. I I
0: know. I was like, 13? (laughs) So, this same article also reported that one of Shirley's sisters, who could have been Linda, turned to alcohol to deal with the pain of losing her sister, and that her sister's husband, which could have been Nelson, died by suicide. Shirley's daughter, Shelly, turned her grief into advocacy and became an advocate for abused women. Shelley often shares her story of growing up in a home with domestic violence and witnessing its devastating effects. So Canadian Snowball was really a game changer in terms of pet DNA being introduced into evidence at a murder trial and successfully securing a conviction. And Snowball wouldn't be the last. On December 9th, 1996, around 8.30 a.m., Witnesses in the South End Seattle, Washington neighborhood would tell authorities of a home invasion shooting. Authorities would learn that men described as Samoan types were seen wearing dark coats. One of them carrying a gun kicked open the door to the residence of Jay Johnson and his girlfriend Raquel Rivera. Soon after kicking in the door, shots rang out with the perpetrators moving into the residence while still firing. A woman's screams could be heard. Two men were then seen exiting the residence, getting into a red Camaro and driving off. A teenage neighbor who lived across the street would tell authorities that the same red Camaro had been parked near the residence during the home invasion. And in fact, this teen witness had seen it all, pretty much. Inside the residence, three victims were found. The first one was one-year-old pit bull Labrador mix named Chief. He had been shot twice, once in the shoulder and the other in the muzzle.
1: Oh, protecting his people. Correct.
0: The next victim was Raquel Rivera, who was age 20. She had been shot three times, once in the chin, the neck, and the hand. The final victim was Jay Johnson, age 22. He had been shot twice in the legs and then twice in the abdomen. Rivera and Johnson died at the scene while Chief was taken to a local animal hospital where he later died from complications related to the gunshot wounds he received. The coroner would later describe the shootings as being execution style. So while police were processing the scene that clearly looked as if the perpetrators were searching for something, they noticed a red Camaro driving down the street the following afternoon. Two men, George Tiafano and Charles Nico were immediately taken into custody. The teenage witness would identify Nico as the getaway driver who had remained in the car the day of the shooting. It would be the next morning that another arrest would be made, this time for the alleged shooter, Kenneth Laa Lua Laa Li'i, who went by the nickname Sableclaws, and that's what I'm gonna tell him because that last name is a tongue twister. He had been arrested at the Biltmore Hotel in Tacoma, Washington. Other associates of Sable Claus were arrested soon after, including Tuafa Tuilili, Malini Fassi, and Sheila Harris, fiancee to Fassi. They all allegedly were involved with a Seattle gang called the Mad Pack Gang. All agreed, including Charles Nico, who was facing the death penalty, to testify against Sable Claus and Tuafano at their trials as part of their plea agreements. So prosecutors at Sable Clause and Tuofano's trials presented a motive behind the murders, and that was to rob the couple, they believe, of drugs and money. Whether they got what they were looking for, I couldn't find that anywhere, because I don't think, from what I had seen, that this couple was into that. And... There was no mention of them having taken anything from the residents. They just took three lives needlessly. So both men were on trial for first-degree murder. Both men were tried separately in Kings County Superior Court in what was believed to be the first criminal case in the United States to use dog DNA as evidence, which made it possible due to Snowball. Yay,
1: Snowball, kitty cats to the rescue.
0: Coming through. Canine DNA evidence was presented in court in the form of blood found on a jacket worn by Sable Claws. This jacket was collected on the morning of his arrest at the Biltmore Hotel. Other clothing obtained from Tuafano included pants and a jacket that had both human blood and canine blood, along with several dog hairs that were similar to Chief. Dr. Joy Halverson testified as to the procedure she used to compare Chief's blood sample to the blood found on the jacket and pants. Her outcome was that finding another dog with Chief's DNA profile with the 10 markers or loci that they used was one in three trillion. That's a wrap. So both defendants pleaded not guilty, however. That's not what the jury believed. <laughs> Kenneth La'alua La'ali'i, a.k.a. Sable Claws, was found guilty of two counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of animal cruelty for the killing of chief. George Tuafano. was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. So at Sable Clause's sentencing, he looked as if he could care less about what was going on, often smirking to the camera in the courtroom, even sticking out his tongue at one point. Oh my gosh. So when given the time to say something to the judge, he declined, although through his attorney, a statement was read about appealing his conviction and that he, quote, apologized for overturning a table and spitting on the judge during the pretrial proceedings, unquote. (sighs) Apparently, prior to the jury being brought into the courtroom after his pretrial antics, the judge had Sable Claus restrained in a lector chair, which is a special chair where the arms and legs are shackled while basically being rolled in in a wheelchair. Oh. So it's based off the movie Silence of the Lambs. Oh, my gosh. It's a lector. Yeah. <laughs> Remember when he But he was on, I think, a dolly. Yeah. Wasn't his more of a dolly when he was strapped to yes. it? Yeah. So this is more of a wheelchair. The judge commented that he had, quote, never encountered a man with so little concern for the lives Lives of others. Unquote. Sable Claus was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. George Tufano was sentenced to 26 and a half years in prison on the two first-degree murder convictions, both men appealed. Now, in Sable Clause's case, the appeal court in October of 2003 found that Chief's DNA should not have been admitted into evidence as they viewed at the time, that animal DNA cannot be presented as evidence the same way human DNA can. Now, since their ruling, this belief has been discounted. But the court did not feel that Sable Claus was entitled to a new trial and upheld his original conviction because there was other evidence besides Chief's DNA used in his conviction. And to Afano's case, be careful what you wish for, as the appeals court felt that his 26 and a half year sentence he received was a bit too light and that he should be resentenced to a longer prison term this time life. So he appealed and got a longer sentence. Possibly. I couldn't find anything (laughs) about his resentencing. So I'm not sure on that. But that is what the appeals court had recommended.
1: That was their opinion.
0: That was their opinion. (laughs) So that is two cases where DNA from animals has been used for the first time really to convict to be used in murder trials with successful convictions.
1: Well, I guess if you needed another reason to have a pet, a companion, get one with fur. <laughs> but
0: hopefully you're not a murder victim where their, where their DNA has to be used to help <laughs> right. help convict your murderer. They can prevent murders and they can also help solve murders. They can. I love them. I And there's been many cases since then that I believe that animal DNA has been entered into testimony. I learned a lot, Trish. Taught me We things. are informative and educational yes that
1: that ei we're like pbs for true crime okay. that's, that's our new tagline
0: we're like pbs but true crime. the pbs of of true crime podcasts there you go <laughs> So thank you, everybody, for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And like I said, this is our last episode of 2022. We just want to take a moment and say, hey, we couldn't really do this without you. Everyone that tunes in, everyone that's told somebody else and shared our podcast, we just are so blessed in that aspect. We
1: are. We love our listeners and we hope you follow us into 2023.
0: Yes. And tell others, we hope to have some good things coming more things that we plan to do. Uh, As two working moms, it's it's difficult to try to fit things in, but we do it because we love it. And we, you know, we learn things along the way, I found myself becoming much more knowledgeable about true crime than I ever thought I would. Trish, you're getting better at pronouncing names every single episode. Every single episode. I <laughs> practice so hard. Names are hard for me. Our next, uh, going into 2023, I'm working on a current case where Wendy had pointed out that my Google has learned what I like. So Big Brother knows that when I'm looking up something that may have nothing to do with true crime, it'll connect me to true crime cases. Google gives suggestions now too,
1: but we still we still prefer them from the listeners.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So everyone, we hope you have a stress-free holiday season. We hope to have that. Fingers crossed. So <laughs> we, you never know with family. And we will see you all in the new year. So as we always end. If you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like the teenage neighbor across the street who could have kept his mouth shut and not said anything, but he really was a valuable witness to police. Mm -hmm. Or Shirley's father.
1: Yes. Or Doug Beamish's ex who came forward and shared all those painful details that she did. Not easy. Mm
0: -hmm. Not easy. And if you are a victim of domestic violence, don't be afraid to reach out. I know it's a risk. But there are great organizations and people out there that can help you. So wishing you all well here at the end of 2022. And we'll see you all in 2023.
1: Bye. Bye.